how good do you think a sports team would be without a coach? Every sports team, I think, needs a coach because they need someone who is somewhat unbiased and who can see the big picture during the game. And so that in order to prepare for games, that that coach can drill the guys in practice to do the things that they otherwise wouldn't do. In the same way, a group of Old Testament worshipers would not be capable of acceptable worship before God apart from a well-instructed priest. The worshiper cannot come to God on his own apart from a proper sacrifice. We saw that last week in chapters 1 through 6 of Leviticus. And today, in chapters 6 and 7, we're going to see that someone has to handle the offering properly from beginning to end in order for it to be accepted. And that someone is the priest. We can't come to the Holy God apart from a proper sacrifice through a proper mediator. We looked at chapters 1 through part of chapter 6 last week and we saw the five kinds of offerings that the worshiper was supposed to bring. The, The instructions there in the first part of Leviticus was directed at the worshiper. That is, this is how you're supposed to bring the offering. This is what you're supposed to do. You put your hand on the head of the of the animal. You slit its throat. You have the priest, you know, take the blood and put it on the altar, and then you cut up the animal. But here, in the second part of chapter six through verse through chapter seven, we'll see the same five offerings that we saw last time, but only this time the instructions are directed at the priests, showing them what they're supposed to do on their side, how they are supposed to handle the offerings. You see, it's not enough for us to bring a proper sacrifice. We actually have to have a proper person, a proper mediator that is equipped and knowledgeable enough to handle our sacrifice and to make sure that it makes its way to God in an acceptable manner. Let me begin uh, just by showing you a general outline, just two points. First, instructions to priests. Let me show you where I get that from. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons. He's going to do that several times. In chapter 6, verse 25, he's going to say the same thing. Speak to Aaron and to his sons. Then chapter 7, verse 22, the Lord says to Moses, Speak to... I'm sorry, that's actually the next point. So the first point is, Instructions to priests. Second point, 7.22, is instructions to the worshiper. 7.22, instead of speak to Aaron and his sons, speak to the sons of Israel. And then verse 29 says the same thing. Speak to the sons of Israel. So we have two main points. Instructions for priests and instructions for the worshiper. So let's begin by looking at instructions for the priests. And that goes from chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 7, verse 21. So I'm going to begin by reading verses 8 through 13 of chapter 6. So chapter 6, verse 8, we'll look at this first offering here, the burnt offering. How are the priests supposed to handle this offering when a worshiper comes with this type of offering? Chapter 6, verse 8. This is the Word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law for the burnt offering. 
The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on the other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. But the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up smoke in the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. So, just as a way of review from last time, the burnt offering was designed to give atonement, provide atonement for the worshiper. It would be brought morning and evening and was to atone for unintentional sins. When the offering was brought to the priest, the only thing that the priest could keep was the hide of the animal. The rest was burnt up in smoke. Just think of it uh, that way. Burnt offering is completely burned up. Now the priest's main job for the burnt offering is to do what? There's something that's highlighted in this passage. It's mentioned five times in these six verses. Let me just point this out to you here because I think this is his main responsibility with the burnt offering. Look at the end of verse 9. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. Look at verse 12. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. Then the next line, it shall not go out. And then verse 13, fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. And then the next line, it is not to go out. So five times, God tells Moses to tell the sons of Aaron that they are not to allow the fire to go out. Keep the fire going. Now, this is no small task, was it? Think about how much wood would be required to keep this thing going. Now, the, many of the scholars point out that you know the fat from many of these offerings would would be like a a, a fuel for the fire. So, and so they would have to keep it going throughout the night. They're not burning sacrifices all through the night, but there would be enough wood required to keep that that ember going. So, why put an emphasis on a continual fire? What? What do you think God is trying to show them? What, what does this actually point to for us? Why, why a continual fire? Well, scholars often offer several different options. Some say it could re- represent the ongoing sin that our hearts produce. Right? That we are in constant need of atonement. And that is true. We are in constant need of atonement. So maybe that's why the fire was there because we just continually need to be having a sacrifice atone for our sins. Others say it could represent the continual readiness of the priests. They were always ready to offer restitution to those who came. The third option is that it could represent the people's continual worship of the living God. And I think all of those options are close, but I don't think they hit the target. I think that this continual fire, as other scholars recommend, is that it represents the continual access the worshiper has to God. That God is always there, always ready to provide forgiveness of sins to those who come with a substitutionary sacrifice. God was essentially saying, 
for Israel. I'm going to keep the light on for you. Right? It's always going to be burning for you so that when you recognize your sin, I'm here waiting. And the priests are here. The, the fire's burning. The other instructions here uh, in these first six verses have to do with how to handle the ashes. Did you notice that? That they have to, the priests have to make sure that they're ceremonially clean. Now we're going to talk about what cleanness means as opposed to moral purity in the weeks ahead because there are going to be instructions, just whole chapters given to ceremonial cleanness. You know, what do you do when there's mildew in your house? What do you do if there's some sort of infectious skin disease? What happens about these various discharges of the body? How do we handle ourselves before God? Well, well, God's going to give all sorts of instructions, but here we get a glimpse into that by what the priests have to do to make sure that they're ceremonially clean with the ashes. Now, if you think about it, with a burnt offering, obviously everything's being burnt up except for the hide of the animal. So what's going to be left are these ashes. And so they've got to be disposed of somehow. And... and um, and so for proper disposal, they had to wear different clothes. They didn't want to get their uh, priestly clothes tainted by those ashes. And so they would have to wear a different set of clothes when they would take those ashes up and take them outside of the camp. And there's even instructions on making sure that they have proper undergarments on so that they are not uh, defiling the offerings that are being brought in. They had to make sure that they were uh, not exposing those offerings, exposing those offerings to uncleanness. We'll talk a lot about that when we get to chapter 22. So there's the first offering, how the priests are supposed to handle it, the, the burnt offering. The next one is found in chapter 6, verses 14 to 23. We won't read the whole passage. It's the grain offering. You see it uh, mentioned there in verse 15, the grain offering. By way of review, the grain offering was a thanksgiving offering. It was designed so that the worshiper could express express dedication and devotion to God. It required, remember, the best of their grain. It wasn't uh, grain that was kind of old, outdated, ready to be discarded. It was the ripened first fruits of their of their grain. It was the best of the best because that's what God deserves. And so this section could be broken up into two smaller sections. The grain offering from a non-priest. So the priest would know how to handle an offering when it was brought to them, verses 14 to 18. But then, in verses 19 to 23, how they are supposed to bring their own grain offering. So, like in the burnt offering, we'll start with verses 14 to 18. The offering from a non-priest, how the priests are supposed to handle this. The worshiper was not to share in the offering. With the burnt offering, he gave the whole animal to God. The hide was given to the the priest, but the rest of it was burned up. With the grain offering, all of the grain. Remember, even the poorest person had to bring uh, an ephah of fine flour, which works out to about three pounds of flour. All of it was given to them. They couldn't say, here, I give it to you, and now I'll use it to make some bread. It was all given to them. It was all given to God. Now, with these offerings, however, the priest was allowed to keep a portion of it. God allowed them with the grain offering to, to eat some of it. Look at verse 14. 
Now this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. And then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the incense that is on the grain offering. And he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma as its memorial offering to the Lord. Now what is left of it, Aaron and his sons are to eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They're to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. So picture this huge grain offering that comes from really just one person. They're supposed to take a portion of it, put it on the altar, and that gets burned up as an offering to God. The rest of it, some of it, sometimes it was cooked, I mean baked unleavened bread. Other times it was just come as the, the, the grain or the flour. And so the priests would have access to that. Verse 16 tells us that. And this makes sense, right? Because priests didn't own... Uh, property where they could produce or have the time to produce a livelihood through this sort of living or, or raising animals or anything like that. So God allowed them to have a priestly portion of many of these offerings. Ken Matthews in his commentary notes that why this is important. He says because it feeds up the, the it, it, it freed up the priests to give up give their full attention to the spiritual needs of the people. And Paul uses this as an illustration for why pastors ought to be paid. In 1 Corinthians 9.13, Paul says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? And then in verse 14, Paul says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. See, for the Old Testament priest, it freed them up to focus on the spiritual responsibilities of themselves and the worshipers. And Paul says that it's very similar within the church that pastors ought to be paid to be able to give the gospel to other people. So that's the offering. If someone comes who is a non-priest, the priest would take a portion of it. But what I want you to notice is that in verses 19 through 23, they, they can't take a portion of their own offering. This is interesting. Notice the difference here in verse 22. The anointed priest who will be in his place among his sons shall offer it, that is the priest's offering of grain. By a permanent ordinance it shall be entirely offered up in smoke to the Lord. So every grain offering of the priest shall be burned entirely. It shall not be eaten. Why do you think this is? Why is it that when someone else comes, the priest was allowed to keep the remainder of the offering. But when the priest came and offered his own grain offering, he wasn't allowed to keep any. Well, for the priest, just like any other worshiper, what does the grain offering express? You remember? His devotion to God. His dedication, his full commitment to God. It reminds me of David at the end of Second Samuel when he plans to purchase a threshing floor so that he can build an altar and offer a sacrifice to God. And when he asks a landowner who had a threshing floor, the landowner replies, take it, you can have the piece of property that you need to build the altar, and I'm also going to provide for you the yoke from the ox. I'm going to provide you the oxen so you can offer them a sacrifice. And as far as the wood that you need to kindle the fire... You can just take the yoke from these two oxen that I'm going to give you and you can burn those. Use that as fire. So everything that you need, David, 
for your sacrifice, I'm giving it to you. Remember how David replied? One of the most poignant lines in all the Bible. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, which cost me nothing. David said, no, I'm going to pay for that. And here, here's what God is teaching the priest. I think David probably learned this from God's expectation of our best. That we can't just give a partial, a, a part of ourselves, right? God deserves and owns it all. And so, even though when we give some of our offering for them, a grain offering, we're still keeping back some to, to make a living on and to, to be able to sustain ourselves. But that's really an expression of the fact that all of it belongs to God, right? The same thing is true for the priests. They couldn't keep a portion back. None of it was to be eaten. How could they give to the Lord what cost them nothing? How can we give to the Lord what cost us nothing? So you have the burnt offering and then the grain offering. And then number three, the sin offering. In verses 24 through 30, the sin offering, you remember, was an animal who symbolized atonement for unintentional sins. And the difference between the sin offering and the burnt offering is that some of the meat of the sin offering is given to the priest. Now, the best portions of the meat, the filet mignon type, type portions, the, the best of the best is given to God and burned up on the altar. But in the sin offering, the rest of the animal, most of the rest of the animal is given to the priest. Look at verse 26. The priest who offers it, that is the sin offering, for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. This offering would provide forgiveness of sins for the worshiper. We see how dependent the worshiper was on the priests. In verses 27 and 28, it talks about what happens when blood splatters on various objects in the temple, in the tabernacle. If it splattered on the priestly garments, they had to be washed. If it couldn't be washed out, it had to be burned up. If the, the blood was sprinkled on some clay pot, if it was sprinkled on a metal pot, it had to be scoured and all that blood had to be removed. But if it was sprinkled and got onto a clay pot, what happens with the clay pot? The blood actually gets inside of the pores, right? And that pot is supposed to be done. What was supposed to be done with that? It's supposed to be broken, right? Look at verse 28. Also the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. That is, this, this clay pot had blood sprinkled on it, it's to be broken. It's, it's of no use anymore. So why such protection against this blood? Why did the, the priests have to wash it out of their clothes and have, go to such extremes? I mean, it takes so long to make a clay pot. The point was that God did not want blood that was designed to symbolize atonement to be mixed with something that was common. This is something that's it's a sub-theme that runs throughout this book of Leviticus. God doesn't want the blood to be mixed with anything else. So if it can be washed off, great. If it can't, it needs to be destroyed. That's a sin offering. And in that sin offering, we see how much the worshiper, the worshiper is really dependent upon the priest. If he came with the proper sacrifice, if he 
put his hand on the head of the animal, if he slit the throat, if he cut it up as he was supposed to do, and then handed over the, sacri- the, the sacrifice to the priest, and the priest messed it up. He didn't do his job. The offering was of no value. did not provide forgiveness of sins. In verses 1-10 through 10 of chapter 7, we have the guilt offering. The guilt offering was to provide restitution for those who need to be reconciled to another person. So if someone stole something, they had to bring, bring back what they had stolen plus 20%. So that they could make restitution, reconciliation, peace with that person. But in addition to that, they also had to bring an offering to God. Why? Because whoever we sin against is not the most offended party. God is always the most offended party. And so He requires, even if you make restitution with that person, you still have to make restitution with God because you sinned against God. And so that's in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And then we have the peace offerings in verses 11 through 20. Uh, excuse me, 11 through 21. The peace offerings were essentially fellowship offerings, and some of your translations actually may say that, fellowship offerings. They're very similar to the burnt offerings in that a person had to bring an acceptable sacrifice. But with the peace offerings, they would share in a portion of it. Remember, every other offering they couldn't share in, in anything that they gave to God. The burnt offering, everything's burned up. Sin offering... It's either burned up or given to the priest. The grain offering, burned up or given to the priest. Guilt offering, given to the person who they need to make restitution with and given to God. But in the peace offering or the fellowship offering, God wanted to show that He was communing with these people so that a portion of the peace offerings were actually enjoyed by the worshiper. It represented the communion that they had with God. And it showed that in order to have proper fellowship with God, a person had to bring an acceptable blood sacrifice. Notice verse 14, some of it belongs to the priest. Chapter 7, verse 14, Of this he shall present one of every offering as a contribution to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offerings. Some of this peace offering belongs to the priest. Verse 15, Now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. So the worshiper gives a portion to the priest. The priest offers some of it up to God and keeps some for himself as God allows him. And the worshiper keeps some for himself as well. There are a couple types of peace offerings. I mentioned last week that peace offerings are always mentioned in the plural while all the other offerings are mentioned in the singular. Verses 12 to 15 shows us the thanksgiving offering. The second type of peace offering is a free will or a votive offering. We didn't get any instruction on this last time, but here we get a glimpse into what it is. Verse 16, But if the sacrifice of his, and I would say peace offering, is a votive or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers the sacrifice, and on the next day what is left of it may be eaten. It goes on to say that if it's on the third day, then he's actually made the offering of no value, invalid. So this free will offering or votive or vow offering, this was a gift to God in response to God's deliverance. Remember Paul in Acts 21. The people were accusing him of abandoning the Jewish, uh, the Jewish race. 
But James, the pastor at um, Jerusalem, suggested that it would be good for him to show that he was still committed to the Mosaic Law, that he didn't abandon the Mosaic Law. Now, Paul didn't see the Mosaic Law in the same way he saw it before, right? It wasn't a means of his salvation like he saw when he was a Pharisee, but he didn't abandon the Mosaic Law. And so he happily takes these four men who are bringing a vow offering, remember? And he stays with them for seven days. It was at that time that he was taken into custody. This is a vow offering. Something given in thanksgiving to God because of some deliverance that he has brought upon them. Notice the strict warnings in verse 19 against uncleanness and inappropriate worship. Also the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat such flesh. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which belong to the Lord in his uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from his people. When anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing and eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which belong to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. Two times God tells Moses to tell the priests that if they become unclean and participate in these peace offerings with God, commune with God while they're unclean, they'll be cut off from their people. At the very least, being cut off from their people meant that they were removed from the blessings of the promises that come through Abraham. But at the most, and more likely, it's referring to divine judgment, premature death. They will be cut off from from God's people. They will not enjoy the benefits of eternal love and grace. So, chapter 6, last part of chapter 6 through chapter 7, verse 21, talks about the instructions for the priests. Now, if you notice in verse 22, verse 23 actually, speak to the sons of Israel. Now we have instructions for the worshiper. Chapter 7, verses 22 through 38. And there are a couple of instructions. First, no fat or blood. Verses 22 through 27. No fat or blood. Notice in um, verse... Verse 25, For whoever eats the fat of the animal from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord, even the person who eats shall be cut off from his people. You are not to eat any blood, either, or bird or animal in any of your dwellings. Any person who eats any blood, even that person shall be cut off from his people. So, before we start to make application about whether we should ever eat another filet, we need to consider a few things. First, Why was it wrong for Israel to eat fat or blood? And second, what instructions do we have in the New Testament regarding our eating of fat or blood? Well, we learn here in verses 23 through 25 why it was wrong for them to eat it. Look at verse 23. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat from an ox or sheep or goat, also the fat of an animal which dies and the fat of an animal torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but you must certainly not eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord, even the person who eats shall be cut off. So what was the purpose of the fat of the animal? It was the best of the animal. 
And it was designed to be, verse 25 tells us, an offering to the Lord. So, very simply, the reason that Israel couldn't eat the fat was because it belonged to God. It was the best part of the animal. Why was it wrong for them to eat blood? Well, in the Old Testament, blood represents what? Life, right? Genesis 9.4, Only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. The idea is not that they you know, must avoid drinking cups of blood. I don't think that was the temptation. But rather, that, that the, the animal had to have the blood drained out of it before they would, would uh, take the meat. Deuteronomy 12.23 Only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You shall not eat the life with the flesh. So the blood symbolized something very important. It symbolized life. And the pouring out of blood symbolized what? Death, right? It symbolized death and atonement for sin. And so, God didn't want them to to have any part of that blood because He didn't want them to profane that that which was pictured to symbolize their forgiveness. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews talks about this idea for our sacrifice as well. Ours is not a blood... uh, 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 a blood sacrifice like theirs. We don't have a bull or a goat or something that we're offering to God in order to make atonement for our sins. But rather, the blood that we are the beneficiaries of that was spilled out for us is the blood of the perfect Lamb of God. And I think the principle still applies. Not the principle of not eating the blood, but the principle of not profaning something that's designed to be a picture of our redemption. And so God doesn't want us to profane this gift of Christ's blood, not to reject it or to marginalize it. Christ's blood is very serious before God. Look at chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think the principle still applies for us that we must not profane the blood that was shed for our sins. For the Old Testament worshiper, that meant that they couldn't eat any of the meat while the blood was still in it. For us, that means not turning our backs on Christ, right? By profaning His sacrifice that He made for us. By mixing His blood with something that's common. The second instruction in Leviticus 7 for the worshipers 
The first is about fat and blood. The second is regarding the portions for the priests. He wanted the people to know that the Lord accepted their offering. He accepted their blood and their fat from their animals. The atonement was the best of what they had to offer and the rest belonged to the priest. And that was the the breast of the animal and the right thigh. This offering was given to the priest and the priest would offer it up to the Lord. Apparently, he would lift it up before the altar signifying his giving of it to the Lord and then then he would keep his portion of it. In verses 37 and 38, there's a summary of this section as Moses often does in this book. So let me leave you with five observations about our worship. Five observations about our worship. Number one, there is no such thing as worship by proxy or worship by delegation. There is no such thing as worship by proxy. There is a quick phrase that if you read through this section before coming today, it may have seemed unimportant, but I think it has vital significance for our understanding of worship. Look at chapter 7, verse 30. His own hands are to bring offerings by fire to the Lord. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be presented as a wave offering, with His own hands. The Old Testament worshiper couldn't send a delegate to make a sacrifice for him, could he? He couldn't sign up for you know, sacrifices unlimited online. I'm just taking care of all my sins are covered. I'll just pay this fee to someone, send them to the tabernacle, and they'll worship for me. Never have to go myself. Friends, the same is true today. No one can have a right relationship with God for you. No one can worship for you. No one can give God what He deserves for you. You are to do it directly and personally. God demands that you come to Him directly and regularly in order to maintain fellowship with Him. There is no such thing as worship by proxy. Number two, past acceptable worship does not guarantee ongoing acceptable worship. Past acceptable worship does not guarantee future results. The Old Testament worshiper could have, from the beginning, made acceptable sacrifices, but that does not guarantee ongoing acceptable worship. Our responsibility as Christians is to persevere all the way until the end. That means that we can't rest on our laurel on our laurels. We can't see ourselves as a Christian veteran. There's no such thing as a Christian veteran of the war in the sense that we've already fought all the Christian battles before. My fight against sin and Satan is over. It's done. And I don't have to do anything else. Now, in one sense, when we're justified, obviously, it is done. It's finished. We don't have to add anything to our salvation. But our worship is still ongoing. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to persevere to the end, to keep standing up in battle, to keep fighting. 
Don't tell me what you did for, uh, you know, for God 20 years ago. In what ways is God using you to advance His work today? In what ways is God changing you now, refining you to become more like Christ? In what ways is God increasing and improving and, and strengthening your love for worshiping Him? See, genuine Christians bear fruit, and that is a lifelong cultivation process, isn't it? Paul says it this way, that we are nearer to Christ than when we first received. So, if we're not nearer to Christ than when we first believed, when we first trusted in Christ, we ought to question what's going on. If we are closer to Christ than when we first believed, then that's a sign of life. It's a sign of this Holy Spirit living within us and producing fruit. That's great. Number three, God is serious about our forms of worship. God is serious about our forms of worship. The fact that God left us with detailed instructions for how He expected to be approached in an Old Testament Levitical system shows us that worship of God is very important to Him. He didn't just say, you know, just come. Just come to me. So all I care. This is exactly how you must come. And if you don't come this way, I will not accept you. Gordon, Gordon Wenham, uh, a commentator, says it this way, God is more important, more distinguished, worthy of more respect than any man, and there sh- therefore we should follow His injunctions to the letter if we respect Him. So, for us, it's not bringing animals, not bringing grain, so that God can have that. But we've got loads of, of information in the New Testament to tell us how God expects to be worshipped. What kind of elements ought to be in our worship service? What our hearts ought to be like when we come to worship. Right? And if God was so concerned about how the, the believers of old would come to Him... Is He less concerned about how we come to Him? Is God less serious about our attitudes and our forms? Number four, acceptable worship of God requires a proper mediator. This is the main point of, I think, this section of Scripture that we've looked at. Acceptable worship of God requires a proper mediator. Old Testament worship required a priest. Right to properly handle the offering from beginning to end. But for us, our access comes not through a finite person, not through a sinful person like a priest, and not through a, a, a person who has a limit as far as his time, right? You don't have no priest in the Old Testament just continued on living. Eventually, even the best ones would die, wouldn't they? And so you need another one. But for us, we have the perfect person standing in our place, accepting the offering that we bring to God. He stands as the priest and at the same time the sacrifice for our sins. See, for the priest, if he would have offered himself as a sacrifice, God wouldn't have accepted it. He was imperfect. God required a perfect animal. 
perfect being to come and be offered as a sacrifice. And then it had to be done through a perfect or a, at least a clean, uh, a purified priest. For us, Christ is both the sacrifice and the priest. He offers His own blood on the altar for our sins. Here's how Hebrews 10 says it. Every priest, speaking of the Old Testament priest, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins ultimately. It would do it temporarily. But He, having offered one sacrifice, Christ, for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Christ is our perfect mediator. God would not accept anything that we could bring to Him apart from Christ. Yet in Christ, God, in a sense, does accept us as we are, doesn't He? That our offerings are much like a child baking a cake for his parents, one of his parents' birthday, right? It may not be the best, but you know what? It's from my son. It's from my daughter. And so we are part of God's family now, and He accepts what we have to bring. Now, obviously, I'm not saying we ought to go on sinning so that grace may abound, or, you know, God will just love us apart from our sin, that, that sort of thing. But we can actually do righteousness. We can actually offer acceptable sacrifices to God. Acceptable worship of God requires a proper mediator. Number five, we are in need of continual cleansing. We need continual cleansing. We understand that Christ paid for all of our sin, that His sacrifice was sufficient, that we no longer have to offer sacrifices day after day like the Old Testament worshiper. However, we should recognize that we are in need of continual cleansing. Isn't this the point of Jesus washing the disciples' feet? When He comes to Peter, Peter says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And he says, well, fine, then wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, you've already been washed. A person who's been bathed doesn't need to be washed again. He only needs his feet cleaned. I think that illustrates for us what happens in salvation. That that we have to be a part of Christ's service to us. And if we have are not allowing Him to serve us by offering Himself as a sacrifice, we have no part with Christ. But for us to say, well, then keep wash me all over again, you know, save me again, or something. That's not the point. Jesus says, no. You need to be continually cleansed. Well, what what does that what, what does that mean? It means that, like First John one nine, that if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. That's the type of cleansing that we continually need because of our sin. And Christ saved us. He didn't completely eliminate sin from us. Okay? But he, he eliminated the power of sin. That is, the dominion of sin over us. It no longer is our master. Yes, we still, uh, we, we still submit to it at times, but it's no longer our master. Christ is now. 
And so when we do submit to sin as our Master on those occasions, we come back to Christ for cleansing. We ask for forgiveness. We acknowledge our sin before Him. Seek forgiveness. And God says that He is faithful and just to do that and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just like the fire of the altar never died out, showing the worshiper that they had continual access to God's forgiveness, we too must recognize that we have constant, unlimited access to the Holy God through Christ. And that we can continually be cleansed. And that's what we ought to do. Seek to be continually cleansed before God. Let's pray. Father, we feel the, the weight of sin and its consequences upon us in this world. And we feel the, the blows that come from being in a battle against sin and Satan. And we are often in despair and downcast. And so we pray that You would show us Your grace once again. Remind us of the love that You showed to us at the cross. Help us to run to You for grace. Humble us before You so that, that we can be exalted. Remove our pride so that we will not be destroyed. Lord, we, we long to worship You in the way that You desire to be worshipped. And so I pray that as we think through this book of Leviticus, we would reflect on, on our church's worship and our individual worship of You with our lives. That we would gladly be willing to offer our lives as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto You. And that the forms of worship that we include in our service would be done in a way that would be pleasing to You, that would honor Your name. Father, if there's someone here who hasn't received and experienced the joy of having Christ's blood applied to their account, I pray that they would turn in faith to Him today. And for the rest of us, give us the strength to, to carry on, to persevere till the end, to worship You directly and continually. Lord, You are worthy of all of our praise. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.